Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. My guest today is Stephen Fry, who is an English actor, broadcaster, comedian, director, writer, and in fact, he does it all. He's been characterized as a Renaissance man, and the British have described him as a national treasure, possessed with a brilliant mind, a natural wit, and an extraordinary verbal facility. And you will see all of that demonstrated in this podcast. I hope you enjoy. Maybe we should we start our thing? Yeah, we might as well. Just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> yeah, let it flow. Uh, no, but getting back to advertising, I mean, I think that's it's interesting to watch that. And one of the things that, um, in some ways, has um, well, I would like to believe ultimately has helped society is the nature of capitalism. But uh, you know, it's transitioned to ruthless capitalism. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's no shame uh, about the manipulation of people for money, right? Yeah. And a narrative is erected whereby any criticism, for example, in the field of advertising, say, high sugar content to, to children, which everybody understands is a very dangerous thing to do, they still manage to paint anybody who objects as some kind of rabid socialist who should be hushed. Well, you know, it's, well, that's a whole other conversation. It, it always amuses me how, if you will, social democracy, where you have a social contract mm. to benefit everyone, gets transitioned into a negative term of socialism, yeah. which somehow is to be avoided at all costs. It's particularly true in America. I mean, uh, you know, the, we regard the, the Democrats as a very right-wing party if they were in Europe. I mean, very right-wing. Uh, um, and they naturally, every American political figure except a few like Bernie Sanders would regard almost every British party as loony left. Um, <laughs> but a lot of it is to do, isn't it, with that deep sense in America of the individual, the primacy of the individual overriding any sense of a common good or and you see it in traffic you see it with the way that compared to britain americans just uh, hey i can get in the traffic here even if waiting and letting someone else in would allow the traffic to move faster it's the individual wanting to get their atom in and the idea that there is such a thing as traffic is like saying there's such a thing as society <laughs> it's a kind of anti and, and in that sense there's a randian kind of uh, libertarianism or sort of atomism at work, isn't there? Well, you know, I think this is the, the pro, this constant, and I think it's a false notion of this rugged individualism in the sense that it's sold to people, they buy into it to justify certain types of behavior, but the system that is telling them that is manipulating them to take everything away from them, uh, <laughs> except for them being able to, Cut into traffic. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> to, to be a unit in, yeah, yeah, that's a great, oh dear. Well, well let's not start in a depressed manner. That's what depressing? I, I thought that was, that's going to be the highlight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh. Well, actually, uh, what, what would you like to talk about? Well, I'm very interested in the work you do. Um, I mean, it's extraordinary what you've done, and I have a thank you to make, I believe, because, talking of making things depressing, 
I had an exciting um, diagnosis a few years ago of a, of a, a adenocarcinoma in the prostate. Uh, that was taken out. And, and then, you know, as often happens, there's a few cells residing on the bed of the uh, excised prostate and they migrate and uh, settle down in another part of bone or something. And that happened with me, and that has been treated with the oh, cyber, cyber knife. Oh, wow. And wow. I know you were one of the pioneers and believers, uh, early believers in the cyber knife, which for the listeners' sake we should say is a very... Is, is, a, is a much more targeted form of radiotherapy than had been available before. No, that's right. Uh, my colleague, John Adler, came up with the idea, and then um, the company failed, and the technology had not really been completely developed. And then, very naively, I just assumed that, uh, well, I'll because I, I had gotten a friend of mine who's a, a wealthy physician from family money to buy the first unit outside of Stanford. And what happened is that he bought it, then the company went effectively bankrupt. So, you know, I felt an obligation to him to save the company and, frankly, to the world to make sure this technology gets out there. So I walked away from a very um, successful private practice to do this, which then led to my divorce. (laughs) Oh, but no. that was pending anyway. Okay. I mean, that would have happened. So you left practice and went into biotech, I suppose you yes, call it. Yes, yes. Uh, so sort of this entrepreneurial space. So I ended up raising about $18 million, restructured the company, and then perfected the technology. And then it ultimately became successful. So, yeah, there are, I think, 450 or so units around the world now. So, you know, it's uh, it's been a great uh, sort of honor to be associated with that and, you know, uh, helping people, just as you describe. And again, as you point out, the extraordinary thing is the ability to not just target areas in the brain, but throughout the body. Yes. Extraordinary, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. And even more so, actually, and this isn't meant to be about me, but (laughs) we could could just talk about whatever. (laughs) But but, uh, the development of techniques, uh, which uh, occurred while I was running the company, to actually track the trajectory of the tumor while you breathe, if you have a lung lesion, right? Because if you radiate somebody... And it's moving, obviously, you're getting Absolutely. a lot of... Absolutely, uh, going off and, yeah, and so, causing damage to healthy yeah, tissue. Exactly. So we developed a technique where it, it tracks in three-dimensional space on the fly. And so the, the robot actually moves as you're breathing. That's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. So that's... Because with basic radiotherapy, I'm certainly in the case of, say, something in the, in the abdomen or lower abdomen, like... A, prostate area, they actually put little tattoo marks on you to as registration marks for the machine. And if you move too much out of it, it bleeps and it has to be so accurate. But the side of the knife, none of that. It just follows you. Yes, it, it, it's able Is to Is that true with reading the density of a particular part of the... Well, there are different ways to do it. If the lesion is in relationship to bone, you, you actually use merged imaging because what happens is... You take a CT, which you then which shows bone weld. Then you merge it with an MRI. Right. Then you then on the fly take skeletal imaging, <gasps> and then merge that with those three right. things. And so you're mapping three uh, images. Three D. And then if yeah. you're breathing, of course, it's not just X, Y, and Z plane. It's a moving X, Y, and Z plane. So then with this technique, you put. Uh, infrared markers on, and then that tracks it, which yeah. then tells the computer. Now, 
I don't mean to imply I have any knowledge of how that was done. (laughs) I I, I, I simply you saw that it was a good thing. Yes, yes. And that it should be in the world. I mean, the the amazing thing about these kinds of technology and any kind of technology, we tend to talk most about telecommunications technology because we handle it every day. But it is a fast-moving river. And, And I can recall in the early days of smartphones, People saying, no, I don't think I want something like that. I say, but it isn't going to be something like that. It's like this at the moment, but that's like staring at an embryo in a, in a, in a you know, on an ultrasound and saying, that's an ugly child. It's, well, it's going to grow. It's going to develop. It's yes, going to yes. change. And the speed at which it does so is, is mind-numbing. Well, I think there are two challenges. One is that the naysayers who don't have imagination, mm. then you have another subset of people who have so so much imagination that the likelihood of that actually happening is far distant. Yeah. So you have to sort of have uh, something in between. But yeah, technology is amazing. Uh, I'll share with you another project if you're interested, actually related to mental health, oh. uh, which I'm uh, founded this company. Well, the transcranial magnetic. Uh, 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 no, yeah. well, that's helpful for depression, which yeah. is something I'm yeah. was involved in some of the research with that long ago. But no, this is actually using artificial intelligence and machine learning. And what we're trying to do here is to take your cell phone and then it, on the fly, determines your emotional state based on facial expression and voice intonation and the context of your speech to determine your emotional state on the fly. Then we've created a compassion engine, if you will, which utilizes compassion-focused dialogue which can meet the, the problems that it is yeah, deducing. So it, it starts asking you a series of questions yeah. and then just engages in a conversation, but it uses a human avatar. Gracious. So uh, that's another interesting yeah. thing. Yeah, so. Well, I remember the very first, <clears throat> I was always interested in artificial intelligence back in the days when it was really Marvin Minsky and a few others who were, you know, the, the sort of leaders of it and, I can remember Eliza. Eliza, do you remember Eliza? Oh yeah, sure. Which sure. was a which was a sort of supposed uh, psychotherapist who would ask questions. Very programmed, and you could sort of see how it worked. But it was the first step towards this world of what now chatbots. When you've you know you've got a problem with FedEx, you'll get a chatbot. Well, I mean, to be frank with you, chatbots make me go crazy. Me too. Because All you of sit us. there. Yeah, because you yeah. sit there and it goes. Uh, could you repeat that again? Doesn't could you repeat? And, and it's like, actually, I get frustrated with mm. the uh, air, airlines. <laughs> we, <laughs> we try to solve a problem. And, uh, but it's interesting, this idea that, you you know, we know, don't we, that um, humans are programmed pretty ex- astonishingly to read expressions and the babies from the very first. You can put an expensive, multicolored, musical, sort of uh, a little mobile machine that goes round and round. Uh, over a baby's face and next to it a simple disc of paper with two very crude dots for eyes and a smile and the baby will immediately look at that piece of paper and ignore the multicolored musical. Well, it shows you how imprinted certain behaviors, right? Right? Now, this actually gets sort of into my area of Mm. uh, this compassion, uh, which is it's fascinating to see how the baby responds or how its caretaker responds when a baby cries or, Mm. if you will, quote-unquote, is suffering. And there are all these changes that go on in your brain because why would a human or why would anyone spend the time and resources to care for this crying child? There was a story actually yesterday 
about how people who've had children, the more children they've had, more experienced mothers can read what a baby's squall is, whereas people like me who've had no children and find the sound of a baby crying absolutely unbearable. <laughs> I'm not saying, of course, parents find it unbearable too, which is why they've got to get up and feed the right. child. But I, I would want to throw the child out of the window <laughs> rather than feed it, which is a terrible thing to say, of course. But Especially if we're talking yeah, about but, but it speaks to your point about, about the fact that there is... Yeah, some, so we're highly attuned to mm. interpret these emotional states and then to intervene. And when you intervene, actually... Uh, your reward centers get uh, stimulated. Right, so you get a little dopamine reward or something. Or, uh, oxytocin, but, you know. Oxytocin uh, is my favorite. Uh, uh, yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Hang um, on, that was uh, that was Purdue, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, all of this is sort of interesting. And in fact, you know, obviously I'm a neurosurgeon, but I've sort of had interest in these. In the endocrinological signs. Well, actually, no. Well, yes, but more in the nature of suffering. And sort of trying to understand what makes somebody intervene and what stops them from intervening, right? Yeah. I mean, that's so interesting because you're looking at it from a physiological and um, neurological point of view. And the same questions have been asked, of course, by moral philosophers, sure. ethicists, as we now like to call them, Pete Singer famously, for example. Sure. And that gave rise to, to what is known as the effective altruism movement, his idea of suffering and what a human would do to intervene in suffering, his famous thought experiment about well, seeing you know, a child. Well, <laughs> that's in interesting. Yeah. I'll give you my take on effective altruism, which yeah. may piss some people off. Yeah. But, <laughs> but mm. So the challenge is, who is the decider of who receives the most benefit? As mm. an example, mm. if you look at the resources that have been put into Africa, mm. which is like you know dumping tons of money and you're not necessarily seeing mm. and ongoing improving situation or India where for whatever reason, you know, that money seems to stimulate more benefit, if you will. Well, so do you then decide if you have several million dollars, I'm going to give it to this Indian population because they can do more with it versus. Yeah. And, and so. Which means because it's a slightly less, uh, efficient conduit for your money, the people will suffer doubly, that they will actually get less. That's if it works like that. And I, I mean, I, I think one of the problems of effective altruism, for those who don't know, it's essentially the idea is to audit, if you like, charitable giving to the extent that you can trace how effective dollar for dollar your giving is in terms of outcomes. And it resulted from work done by Peter Singer, the Australian uh, philosopher, and what's his name, McClaskey, I think. Is, is, uh, is it, there's a leading figure in it at Oxford in the philosophy department as well. And I suppose its major problem is a problem that's existed ever since Bentham and, and John Stuart Mill and the early utilitarians. There is something almost cold about it. There is something uncompassionate about that compassion in the same way with Marxism, where you say, don't give them money, don't don't believe in charity because it's a sticking plaster that keeps a corrupt system lasting longer. So you should pass by on the other side and let the suffering increase because then there'll be a revolution. Now you've got to be damned cold-hearted. Yeah, and, 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 and this is the problem is, is it is in some ways cold-hearted, the manner in which this is viewed. And the other challenge I have, which I've seen directly, is you have an extraordinarily wealthy person who 
bias into the narrative of effective altruism. Mm. And in my mind, if you believe that, then what you should do is gather a group of experts in whatever domain you wish to mm. spend this money, give them the money, and let them make the choice, right? But you never see the billionaire class <laughs> actually do that, right? Yeah. They'll say, I'm head of this, and I'll hire these people, but at the end of the day... I want control. Exactly. And the most common excuse used uh, can seem slightly patronizing and sort of neo-colonial in a way, which is, ah, yes, but you see the corruption. We have to make sure that we, we have oversight because otherwise we can't guarantee that the money won't be siphoned off and stolen and, uh, and so on. That's funny you say that because, you know, I've gotten some grants at Stanford and they'll have somebody assigned to monitoring the thing. And now I'm at Stanford. It is one of the most closely regulated things because, you know, if somebody gives money, it's designated somewhere, it is audited. Yes. Yet, you know, for one particular grant, I had to hire a person half time simply to do the reporting to this person every quarter yeah. about how the money was spent, which is like it drives you nuts because, you know, it's not like I'm going to go out and buy a new Lamborghini, right? No cries. Yeah. But then if you take a case and the most obvious case, I suppose, would be Bill Gates, <clears throat> who has made an, an, an extremely large amount of money and seems to have settled with a few of his friends like Warren Buffett, that they will go the Andrew Carnegie route, which is that, you know, who dies with money is a loser. We will we will try and... And they've obviously targeted things like uh, HIV AIDS and, and... Malaria. And, yeah. and resistant tuberculosis and, you know, <clears throat> those three big killers, and they are obviously enormous. And But they've also, because I've done work a little, I say work, it sounds grand. I've done the odd thing for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as it was then, um, for the sustainable goals of the United Nations, which strike me as a, as a real good. And until this uh, COVID and then this war had been an incredible success story. And a number of very specific sustainable goals, as the name implies, to do with things like water and female education and so on. And all those metrics, all those indices have improved since they were first made conscious by the United Nations. But we live now in an age in which we have the systole of individual philanthropy on the one side and, uh, you know, the global institutions like the World Health Organization and the United Nations. And the gap between them is widening and widening. People don't believe in the United Nations. Again, they think it's like some sort of socialist, terrible thing because it's internationalist rather than nationalist. And that goes against the temper of the times. Well, I agree with you. I think, though, like, unfortunately, and this is this narrative of, well, organizations, as government organizations, should be run as a business, right? Mm. And if that's your philosophy... It's nonsense, isn't it? Yeah, it's completely nonsense yeah. because it's for the greater good. It's not to minimize expenditures and maximize profit, right? Nice. And so when these guys say this, it's laughable, and, and it leaves out a significant part of society. And if you look at it, what was the middle class is no longer the middle class anymore yeah. because we keep taking from them. Yeah. I always find it interesting that the ruling class, uh, if you will, which is yeah. the moneyed class, yeah. and I'm not talking about five or 10 million, I'm talking about the 0.001%, yeah. which 
controls effectively what? Over 50, if not more percent, is held in the hands of eight families or people, right? Which is, to me, an abomination. But it's always interesting to look at Davos because you have a subset of people who decide that it's their right to make decisions about how the economy flows, right? Yeah. And, you know, there's an interesting quote by Tolstoy, which I'll probably screw up, but it's something along the lines of, you know, there's a man on your back choking you. He acknowledges he's on your back choking you, but at no time does he ever offer to get off your back and stop choking you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful description of exactly what the problem is. Yeah, it is. And, and I think most people, uh, whatever their sort of alignment in politics might be considered to be left or right, they understand that there is an enormous problem with capitalism at the moment. And uh, if, if nothing else, it's it structures the move towards globalization, the inexorable uh, uh, you know, transnational corporations have exposed, rather like a drought exposing you know, the bones and the, uh, the, the hidden bodies in a, in a lake, as, as we've <laughs> like seen Mead, right? at Lake Mead, yeah. it's exposed the fragility of the just-in-time supply chains and the, the structures by which goods are, and services are, are moved and monitored and sold and bought. And, and the entire world of trade is so contingent and so fragile that uh, uh, we're suffering enormously well, this is the effect of unintended consequences, mm. right? Uh, uh, yeah. But I think it, another manifestation of that is you have, maybe this is off the mark, but you can tell me, you have a group of people who, as an example in the United States, say, you know, we don't want any immigrants. Get these rapists and murderers out of here, yeah. which, of course, is frankly not true at all. But then suddenly they force them out and all these crops— are rotting, <laughs> right? And there's duh. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah and, yeah, and and the horrible thing is, and I hate to say this, but the reality is, the primarily Caucasian population in America, that job is beneath them, I think. Yeah. And so, yeah. who's going to do it? Absolutely. And uh, and it's unfortunate. And and then, you know, we're talking about capitalism. I think the nature of capitalism is, at least here, I believe, you know, a, a one political party, who you could probably guess who it might be, you know, and it's not necessarily only that party, but uh, one of them, I mean, fundamentally, they're controlled by corporate entities. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's, you could use an example of a doctor. If your income is dependent on a particular decision, it's really easy. To, <laughs> so, you know, it's like a surgeon. Yeah. You know, uh, as an example, as a neurosurgeon, a lot of people I see for elective surgery, but they've seen someone else, and they're scheduled for surgery. Yeah. Well, you know, my statement is I'm a doctor, not a surgeon, even though I'm a surgeon. Yeah. But what I mean by that is my job is to do what's best, independent yeah. of financial yes. considerations. Yeah. And, you know, I send half of these people away. Because they don't need surgery. Yeah. But, you know, the nature of our structure is I don't get paid anywhere near what I get paid if I don't do surgery. No. Right? So it's a— and I'm sure you don't want to uh, to, to be lathered in praise, but, but, you know, you are obviously a very compassionate man who thinks very deeply about the nature of that compassion and about, about the nature of suffering and about the possibility of you as an individual and maybe of other individuals being able— to help with that and to deal with it. But there are an enormous number of people, it seems, 
many of whom are almost programmed by their lack of compassion to rise to the top. It's a well-known thing that you, you'll be more aware of even than me, much more than me, even though I've read the old book about it, that there seem to be a much higher proportion of psychopathic people uh, at the top of the, you know, the chain when it comes to corporate governance and things like that. A lot more CEOs are psychopaths than though you would expect in the population, that it helps not to be empathetic or sympathetic or compassionate. Compassionate is just the Latin word for sympathy. Right. And it's, I'd say just, it's a very important word. But therefore, and you as a neurologist must have considered this line of approach. They never call a neurosurgeon a neurologist. Sorry, I'm so sorry, <laughs> neurosurgeon. Otherwise, you, people think you might be Stephen Pinker or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, very good point. Much more serious. I, I, I'm just kidding you. But, but yeah. <laughs> you must have considered the 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 occasional stories that come out about a compassion gene or an altruistic gene, that it is, in fact, part of the palliatory random play of, of genetics that allows each individual to be different, that makes us different in ways that we struggle not to find moral. And where where can our judgment go? Why, can we, why should we praise someone who's born compassionate and dispraise someone who is born callous or narcissistic and malignant in like like the last president for example <laughs> oh come on uh, well i this brings up another interesting point we're we're jumping around in many interesting areas we are aren't we? <laughs> but that's it's nice to hop about you know <laughs> but this gets back to the issue then as an example there are studies that show that you can demonstrate by the age of 5 if somebody's a sociopath wow okay yeah. so is a sociopath responsible for his actions? Well, that's a question. It goes back to the famous Schopenhauer line, we can, uh, we can will what we do, but we can't will what we will. No one says, I decided that I would become a psychopath. Right. Uh, I, I thought I'd be sociopathic. I thought that would be an interesting choice. <laughs> it is something you are, in the same way as you might be um, tone deaf or uh, unable to, to you know, catch or hit a baseball or something. Well, you know, I, I mean, it goes... Not- through so many, I mean, it's sexuality. Mm. I mean, it's, all, all, exactly. all sorts of er- yeah. things. And even, I would suggest, even religious orientation in some ways. Yes. And so, you know, the question is then, what is the nature of creating a moral framework of behavior and how much are you responsible for? The key word there is responsibility, isn't it? And in, in philosophy, the, the problem of free will, determinism versus voluntarism, it, they always have to give it an ism, has resulted with a kind of truce amongst philosophers where they talk about compatibilism, which is to, that's Daniel Dennett, famously, sure. the great American philosopher, wrote a book about, I think it's called Elbow Room, and then he wrote another one uh, after that. But essentially the idea is that it is, Things being determined by cause and effect, whether at a genetic level or in, in wider terms in the universe generally, everything that happens happened because something caused it to happen, and that can go right back to the very, very beginning, which means everything is determined. Logically, everything must be determined. But it's not. that doesn't mean it's incompatible with the idea that there is such a thing as agency and, and responsibility, and, and that's what compatibilism tries to deal with. And I heard Ian, Mc, Ian McEwan, the novelist, put it sure. rather well. He said, I am not my car. It has its own engine that I, I can sort of manage to control. But if I step out of it for a second and I haven't put the handbrake on and it's rolling downhill to kill some children, it's the car that's doing it. But I am responsible for that car. I have to make sure I run downhill, leap into the and, and pull the brake. 
you know, even though I am not the car, and the same with my body and my brain, I am not them, if you like. So the whole ghost in the machine idea, maybe of, of how the mind brain are separated, you know, but it, I think we all understand that the society won't work and it won't make sense, have meaning, unless we accept that there is responsibility for even something that we that it may be determined, but we're still responsible. And that gives us a kind of freedom and a, and a burden. No, yeah, it's funny. I, I had a, a conversation with Sam Harris about this. Right, he's waking up podcast. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I well, was on his, and, and then he, he was he on my podcast. <laughs> yes, I, I've been on his as well. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so uh, uh, we had a. I think our discussion was about free will. Religion and illusion of self, I think, was <laughs> pretty good subjects. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So it was it was actually quite an interesting uh, yeah. uh, discussion. But yeah, I, I think you have to accept the fact that you can make the argument it's predetermined, but that being said, you're still responsible. Mm. Obviously, there are probably some exceptions, but yeah, I, I think that's the case. Uh and then, because otherwise, you have this nihilistic approach that why do we do anything? Precisely. Because we can say that life is random, arbitrary, uh, indifferent, nature is cruel, all the things that are obviously true that anybody who spends any time looking at it. But that doesn't mean it's meaningless. And it doesn't mean it has all the things that we perceive in life and all the life aims that we can erect for ourselves, our ambitions, our dreams and aspirations. And in a sense, that brings me around, I, I would say, to the fact that what our minds do best of all is create a story. They make a story out of the complete noise of reality and a senseless noise, a brutal, meaningless noise. We make a story out of it in which we can cast ourselves in certain roles and we have the ability to change the role, to enrich it as we discover new things and learn new things. And we make a story out of everything in the same way as our senses make a story out. I'm looking at you, but what I'm seeing is a fabrication, as we, you know, it's the most basic. Or, or maybe a creation. A but creation yeah. or a fabrication, yeah, yeah, exactly. however you want to call it, exactly. But it makes sense and it allows me to move around and gives me all kinds of benefits. And that's true in things we see in another sense, the way we see the world. It may not be true, it, it may be that we have no control over it, but if we create a fiction in which we do, we can actually live and thrive. You're absolutely correct. I mean, we create a narrative that allows us to live in this world with our own imperfections. Mm. And uh, it's interesting. I don't know if you've seen it. There's a book that's called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. Have you ever heard of that? It's a great title. <laughs> yeah, it's by these two psychologists. But they interviewed a group of dictators, Right, or who had been deposed. <laughs> but it was fascinating because every one of them would say something like, no, I did nothing wrong. I saved the country. It was me saving the country. And, you know, basically the murdering, the kidnappings, the deaths. No, those were not by me at all. They were by people who did it, but it wasn't by me. I just set regulations that allowed our country to survive. <laughs> And, wow. and and it's complete self-delusion, right? I imagine God says that. Look, I just lay, I gave you the Ten Commandments <laughs> and, you, and said, get on with it. It's not my responsibility. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny about Jordan Peterson. Who was the other one? Is it Burn? B-Y-R-N-E? Uh, oh, yes. There is There is a... Um, you, did, you had to talk about God with That's him. right, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, Gay Burn, the, the yeah, Irish... Yeah, exactly, uh, Irish, exactly. Uh, well, what, yes. 
The Problem of Evil I, I, is what it's known right. as in Theodicy. Actually, that sounds like a book by um, Phil Zimbardo. I don't know if you know Phil. Oh, He's yes. a psychologist. Yes. yes. And he, he uh, wrote about Abu Ghraib and the torturing and why a good person does evil. Yeah. But uh, getting back to <laughs> this other point, uh, which now I've forgotten again. <laughs> it's the stories again. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah Burn, yeah. Gay Burn, and oh, the problem yeah. of evil. Well, so uh, I am, you know, completely in agreement with you that this is all random. Mm. And you know, when you hear somebody say, "Well, the reason this area flooded was because of gay culture," or, <laughs> or yeah. some total, oh, and, and, and what I love is that one of these preachers. Uh, then an event occurred, and his house was completely flooded and destroyed. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Okay. I mean, it, yeah, be careful what you say yeah, in that regard. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's and of course the fact that it's random. There, there's a very good image in I think it's in Middlemarch. It's George, it's a George Eliot image, definitely, where she talks about how if you have, I mean, you can say it of a you know of a desk like the one we're sitting at here. If it's a sort of nice mahogany thing that's been waxed and scrubbed, but also used a lot, it will be covered in random scratches. I mean, absolutely covered in tiny little random scratches. And they make no sense because they say nothing. They're not writing. They don't make, they don't cohere into anything. But if you turn off all other forms of light and then point a flashlight at them or just turn on a light bulb above them, and look at it, all the random scratches will appear to gather in a ball, which is the reflection of the light. And so that they suddenly make sense. They, they are now a ball of light. And she uses that, I guess she was a, she was a, a religious person, but not in an absolutely conventional way, as an example of how if you take a... I suppose we'd call it now an ideology or a faith or a belief or a, a system, and you apply it to the randomness of life, it can gather things up in, in a way that otherwise they wouldn't make any sense. Do, do you see what I mean? Oh, no, it's absolutely. an interesting image. Uh, this is, uh, there's a book about, fundamentalist about correlation does not mean causality. Right. Right. Yes. <laughs> the, the, the ultimate, yeah, indeed, logical fallacy that is committed all the time. Yeah. And, and we and, all do it in yeah, our heads, well, don't we? It's what superstition, <laughs> you know, like, every time I've worn these socks, something has gone wrong. Right, right. that's why I, I wear these unwashed <laughs> underwear to every game I play it for the last 10 years. Mm. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, no, that, 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 that's exactly right. So, you know, there is this tendency, because I think as humans, you talked about story, our life is a story, and we need to make order of the story, yeah. even though it's a random story. Yeah. And again, it also, unfortunately, demonstrates the power of delusion, self-delusion. Yes. And this you can see in our political... Because people tend to take the myth as the ultimate truth and becomes more important than anything. And for an example of that is a nation-state, which is a mythical construct, if ever there were one, constructed of flags and either sovereigns or, or historical details and icons that represent it, and people then are prepared to die for it. But look, looked at it out of space. That could it? be a, a, a soccer team. <laughs> yes, it, it, exactly. Any, anything of that no, nature no, no, it's, that attracts that weird brand of fanatical loyalty and tribal uh, uh, affection. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, it's funny. I've talked to people who are like that, and it's fascinating because – as an example, what do I have anything to do with that team whatsoever? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, uh, you're not playing, you're not mm. you're just showing up. Yeah. But somehow 
and in, in, in some ways, it's like diff- people of different political persuasions who attach to a leader, yeah. a fascist leader, who, yeah. and who he he tells them on in some way they delude themselves that and they give up their agency yes. to this figure yeah. with the false belief that that figure has some power exactly and. and and that that will reflect back on them and make them feel more. Yes, powerful. yeah, and and unfortunately, you know, from my perspective, I mean, my goal has been to promote kindness, compassion as a narrative. Yeah. But you know, you come into contact with people who are just, in many ways, the most hateful people in the world, yeah. and you know, they've decided that their view is the correct one, and that's fine for them. But they feel, for whatever reason, compelled to say, that's my view, and it has to be your view, yeah. even though I'm a white Christian nationalist, which I, I, I find just extraordinary. Are you familiar with the Dutch, I don't know what you call him, thinker, um, Martin, um, is it Martin? No, it's not Martin. Something Bregman. No. Um, he wrote a book called Humankind. Came out last year, I think. Really, and it is exactly about empathy and kindness. It's about he. The most famous bit in it was a bit of research he did, because he wanted to question, if you like, the Hobbesian view of mankind. The famous, you know, that the life of man is nasty, brutish, and short. And Hobbes's view that we are such a mess as a species, such a wild, savage, and that with untamed instincts, that without a social contract. Rousseau and Leiters would call that, that it. That sounds like yeah. uh, uh, red in tooth and claw by right. Tennyson. Exactly, yeah. all those phrases, right, right, exactly. Right. And then, of course, Rousseau and others said, well, no, in fact, what the problem is, civilization does this to us. That, and, and the idea of the noble savage was born and the, you know, this rather patronizing view that we were simple, idealistic, and so on. But So what is a human being? Are we savage animals? Are we blissful and nice, but something's got in the way of the blissful niceness and so on? It's been a big debate, as it were, in politics and elsewhere. You might say some politics is utopian and believes in the greatness and, and, and simplicity and perfection of the individual human, and others believe that we are a mess. But he tested it is quite a hard thing to do empirically because he said, well, <clears throat> the most famous fictional example of Hobbesian humanity is Lord of the Flies, the novel in which a group of schoolboys, so, couldn't get more innocent, choir boys. I mean, it's all, the definition of innocence are stranded on a desert island and, and they crash and they're the only ones there and famously it all goes tits up, as we say in, in England. It all becomes a mess of savagery and brutal, you know, uh, Jack, you know, the, the the nasty one, leads the others. They kill poor Piggy, who's the voice of reason. And, and, and so, but <laughs> it's a novel. And, and Bregman said, I wonder if it's true. Maybe has this ever happened? And he discovered it had happened. It was even a group of boys in an aeroplane. They were Australian. And they crashed in a Papua, sort of somewhere near Papua New Guinea on an island. And they were uh, a year or so before they were rescued. Exactly the same circumstance. And they were wonderful to each other. I was going to say. They were kind, they were thoughtful, they, they, they had a system, and it, it worked beautifully. It was the exact opposite of that dark view of William Golding's, the, the author of, uh, of, of Lord of the Flies. And, and his book is based on that. But he does say that there is research, and I wish I could remember the arguments behind it and the research behind it, that questions empathy as, as kind of 
the sort of panacea we often think it is. Oh, if only people were more empathetic, if only there were more this. And there, there have been, a, you'd have to look at the book, Humankind. Yeah. I'll, I'll, it's a very interesting book. I'm surprised I haven't run across that. Yeah. I'll, I'll, we'll find the title by the end. And... But I, I was just going to say, and, and in some ways you just made the statement that supports it, is society could not survive unless the vast majority of people were kind. It just could not. And so when you get into this narrative uh, that, you know, people will take advantage of you if yeah. you're kind, there is a subset of people who are the psychopaths who end up uh, oftentimes leading entities because, this, unfortunately, the system rewards individuals who demonstrate that type of behavior. Yeah. And, in fact, in some ways it's interesting, I'm sure— you're familiar with mindfulness meditation, some of these other things. Yes, techniques. indeed. I, was, I joined Sam's thing. And I, I don't keep it up, I'm afraid, but I, I did do a bit of that. Well, so. probably 90% of people who say they do don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Very true. laughs> I mean, the stupid thing is I enjoyed it, but I just kind of lapsed, you know, and don't do it every day. But I, um, I should get back what, to it. What I was going to say. But, you know, it's mm. like the study with vegans. It turned out when they studied them, it's like 80% cheated. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, God, yes. So, again, it gets back to deluding ourselves uh, about who we are, and which is, uh, you know, just a characteristic. Like like the famous Kinsey uh, comment, you know, when the the first Kinsey came out, the one on on male sexuality, and a journalist said, Dr. Kinsey, if we're to believe you, it looks like 92% of adult or post-pubescent males... Masturbate at least twice a week. What does that say about about the male? <laughs> he said it tells us eight percent are liars. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. The, the, uh, uh, no, that's that's uh, exactly right. Let's see. Where 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 <laughs> yes, shall we go? <laughs> we have covered a lot of ground for some reason, but it is an. It, it's. I mean, this is the most basic point. Do we believe? Do we believe that most people are decent? Yes, we do, I think. But m- one of my heroes was the writer P.G. Woodhouse. Oh, I love that. <laughs> oh, good. And yes. he had the most benign, and uh, but he, he lived it. And he, he claimed that when he was in London, in Norfolk Street, where he lived in Mayfair, in the morning when he had doing his correspondence, as people in those days did, we now do emails, but it's the same thing, he would write a, le- a type a letter put it in an envelope, stamp, put a stamp on the envelope and the address and throw it out the window. Because he reasoned that the average person seeing a stamped addressed envelope in the street would think, oh, this should go in a postbox and put it in a, in, in, in a mailbox, as you would say. And he claimed he never had a single letter go astray. Well, this might be the 8% who said <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it's a nice thought. Uh, yes. You know. Well, and, and, you know, they have done studies where people drop wallets, Yes, right, absolutely. and and that depends on which city. <laughs> yeah, that, I guess it does. I think we all know what happened in Manhattan and yeah, Chicago, exactly, perhaps. Yeah. But it, I mean, sometimes it's a kind of self-revealing joke when people say, "You know, I was someone collapsed in the street the other day, and I stood and watched for four minutes, and nobody did anything." <laughs> you go, well, hang on, you stood and watched for four minutes, and nobody did. You were one of the people who did nothing, but. Every time I've seen someone collapse in the street, which is not often, but sometimes 
either trips over or has a, a fence or has a who knows sure. some event, uh, people cluster around straight away and they give him light, give him air, um, uh, maybe some hot sweet tea, not sweet, might be diabetic. You know, people get very bossy about, <laughs> right, yeah. you know, I've, no, I've done training, you know, someone's calling the ambulance, you know, everybody is uh, determined to be helpful. I no, I think that's that's right. You know, it's funny you bring that up because... As a physician, I'm in this role, right? <laughs> There's an yeah. accident, I have to stop. Of course, it. Or yeah. I'm swimming, somebody starts drowning, I have to get right. But yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> on a plane, I remember I was on a plane one time, and uh, somebody said, Is there a doctor? And I'm like, Just waiting, hoping this is <laughs> some <laughs> other. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I did the four minutes and nobody showed up, so I, I actually had to go out there. The, the great Ralph Richardson, one, one, <clears throat> one of the great theatrical actors of the 20th century, was in, was in a play and he suddenly stopped and went to the front and said, is there a doctor in the house? And someone said, um, yes, Sir Ralph. He said, oh, doctor, isn't this an awful play? That's <laughs> 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 rather pleasing. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think, I think yes, most of us do have this belief, and therefore we wonder how it is that if if individuals that we meet are, you know, for example, just if you talk to anyone about the, the culture wars, so-called, you know, they'll say, I've not met anybody who's a complete fanatical puritanical figure who will try and cancel you if you use the wrong pronoun, nor have I met anybody who's so fanatically right-wing that, of course, they must exist, but... The vast majority seems so reasonable, so tolerant, so accepting and understanding of the way things are. How come the, the, the temperature on social media and the news and in newspapers is so boiling hot when, in fact, most people are so mild? Well, I think you're right. I, I think what we see here is, uh, whether it's 3% or 5% on either far end of the spectrum, mm. they're the ones who are out there on social media calling people trolls, being very negative, promoting yeah. hate. And frankly, you know, there's something wrong with that. Right? Yeah. Right. But you're right. I think, and this is how governance used to be. You know, yeah. you'd be sort of over on one side or the other, but you'd also recognize that to accomplish anything, you had to compromise. I mean, life is yeah. compromise and uh, versus saying, no, absolutely not. And in fact, not only no, absolutely not, everything you offer, I am going to disagree with, period. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and so how do you get anything done? I, I, I mean, yeah, uh, uh, and it's 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 very frustrating, I think, and I, I think it's it's not only frustrating, it's demoralizing and destructive for yeah. the average person. Communication is a narrow a narrow corridor. The only way we can get through and pass each other is if one steps to the left and one to the right, and you let each other move. But if you're both going, I'm not moving. Then the, the thing is crazy. Yeah. There's a and here's another whole other area we haven't really discussed. But as you know, in the in the 40s and 50s and up to the mid-60s maybe, behaviorism was very fashionable. B.F. Skinner, Skinner was right, the famous so. figure of the, who was somewhat humiliated by his run-in with Chomsky. Uh, but, but aside from that side of things, he did do some interesting experiments and they were thought-provoking, if not fully revealing necessarily. And then there were all these other ones like the the Stanford Prison Experiment. That's and, Phils and Barton. Which Exactly, which you're... Uh, um, and, you know, apparently ordinary people capable of torturing and, and, and being sadistic and brutal when given the authority to do so. But there was a Skinner one that I was always interested in. I don't know how you would ever, ever take advantage of it, but it's frustratingly believable. And that is with mice. If you take 
a small tray or large tray, um, perspex tray, and you put it on the surface of the water and it floats and you fill it with mice. Now, the mice don't know that they're, on, they're floating on the surface <coughs> of the water. They're running around random like individual particles in a Brownian motion, you know? And so the thing stays afloat forever. They, it, they just might as well be on, on dry land. They're just running around perfectly happily. But scale it up and put humans in anything like that. The moment they see they're floating, they all rush to one end and then and the sinks, thing sinks, sinks right because they're conscious. <coughs> and being conscious of your situation can be deleterious to, to the outcome. And, and it's as if, as if we think too hard sometimes. And I, I wonder if anyone listening has this same guilty feeling that I sometimes do, which is that if I didn't know about that earthquake, if I didn't know about that war, as my ancestors wouldn't have done in their little dirty village somewhere in the middle of the countryside, right. they didn't know there'd been a volcano here. They didn't know there'd been a famine there. They didn't know there'd been a, a, a genocidal war there, killing, and they didn't make a fuss about it. And in their ignorance was a genuine kind of bliss because they get on with their world, with their eyes down in their little sphere, their kindness to their neighbors and their friends and their obligations to the village and to the church of the village or to the, you know, whatever it is, to the schoolroom. And, you know, that that little daily round of their lives, just getting on with stuff, is harming no one and it isn't making them anxious and depressed, isn't upsetting them with a view of the future of their race being ghastly. But at the same time, is it... Is it callous to disregard or not to want to know what's going on in the world? If I didn't know about the Ukraine and I didn't know about that nuclear power plant that might go off at any moment, I didn't know how close the doomsday right. clock was to midnight, all of those things, we would all get on and be so much nicer to each other. But we can't put that toothpaste back in the tube, can we? No, I think that's, you know, that's part of the problem. And unfortunately, you know, if you look at climate change and some of these other issues and the nature of 24-hour global media, you know, it creates angst among so yes. many people. And in fact, that's, you look at the, the pandemic as well. I mean, prior to that, people were stressed and anxious. And now uh, with these other things, it's, it's even worse. And I think in some ways, this project I'm working on with mental health is very much needed because, you know, there are not enough therapists that care for all of these people. Mm. Now, the interesting thing is that I've been to a lot of therapists. Mm. <laughs> and it doesn't work, damn it. Uh, uh, or, uh, you know, what I say is I went through uh, a number of years of Freudian analysis. analysis and right. then I went through Jungian analysis. And then Kleinian. And, <laughs> and what I tell people is... I gained insight and I actively chose not to change. <laughs> but no, I, I think that uh, has created so much fear because, as you were saying, if you live in your little village and everything gets along and everything, mm. uh, that's all you're interested in. But there again, I suppose you might say the equation that, that we live under now is that if we live a life that is dependent on pulling goods and minerals and materials out of the earth from all over the globe, then our responsibility is to understand all over the globe where these things come from. In our village scenario, we had we grew our own food and we were a little medieval, but we didn't need to know what was going on in China or in South America because we weren't 
bespoiling their lithium mines or their <laughs> copper mines or, you know, we weren't dragging material out of them, we weren't colonising them, them, exploiting yeah. them, enslaving them and all the things that we subsequently yeah. did. So in a sense, our knowledge is the, is the, is the ball and chain we carry around with us as, a, as our responsibility. No, I, I, I think that's right. It's interesting, though, how the developed countries, though, want to control the undeveloped countries in terms of their actions. So they've already raped their forests, oh, yeah. done all this horrible stuff, polluted all the rivers, and now we're, you know, a few hundred years beyond it. And they're saying, well, we're right, and now we need to yeah. uh, tell you you shouldn't do this. Imagine uh, how, how frustrating and uh, infuriating that would be to someone from one of those countries. Yeah, exactly. No, no. <laughs> What's the next topic? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're well, ahead. the mental health side of things is very interesting because, you know, it speaks to a lot of what we're talking about in terms of the general human anxiety and human distress at the, the way the world is. But it, when it comes to individuals, it can... It, I uh, I was diagnosed as uh, bipolar um, many years ago now. And, and, and so I've, like a lot of people, tried all kinds of different routes to controlling the mood disorder, if you like, to making the weather less disastrous to my happiness and, and to the happiness of those around me. And uh, there's, you know, obviously there have been, there are pharmaceutical approaches that I've tried, lithium and all kinds of other things. And, you know, you also do notice that drinking less and exercising more and, you know, walking in the mornings. Meditating. <laughs> meditating. All these things yeah. do have Absolutely. a genuine effect on me. But there again, I, I mean, it is worth remembering how different we all are in terms of our susceptibility to things like, even, for example, we all know somebody whom we can sit with at a dinner table in a restaurant or at home, it doesn't matter, and we can drink exactly the same amount. We can both have oh. three glasses of red wine, say, and I'll feel a little bit merry and sort of slightly kind of, <laughs> maybe it's a little bit more confident in telling a joke. or whatever. But that person that we know, suddenly the, something snaps in their eyes, they start being rude and offensive, they're uh, insulting waiters, they're picking a fight, they're drinking more. And we've both had exactly what is essentially pretty simple ethyl, you know, chemical. So if that can have different effects on people that are so marked and so clear and undeniable, then think how these antipsychotics and various other tranquilizers and things, how they will necessarily have different effects. Well, on I think the other aspect is that if you look at many of these antidepressants and other agents, they are barely better than placebo. Yeah. And, you know, that begs a whole other question. And, in fact, in some ways, it makes you realize that you have self-agency. You just don't mm. appreciate it. And and the sad thing is that the more someone is suffering, if you will, and, and it gets back to this whole thing of giving your agency to an authoritarian figure. Yeah. You give your agency away with the belief that what they say or the medicine you take or whatever is going to make you better. And it does. Uh, and there's a whole group of people, and even myself sometimes, <laughs> who, you, you know, you know, it's absolute bullshit. <laughs> you take it, you go, okay, I feel yeah. better. But you'd feel better if you didn't take it. Yes. And indeed, there may be ones that can be helpful in the tiniest degree, but that you've read bad publicity about them, and they have the opposite effect, a nocebo effect, if you like. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, that's exactly right. But the interesting thing is, you're right, is how you... Think of an animal that has been 
brought up uh, as a baby in a zoo, a little chimp or, or something, say, that's been rescued from poachers, that's it's been stolen from, uh, you know, Rwanda or somewhere. And so you run a little chimp sanctuary uh, in, in Africa, which, you know, there are plenty of, and you raise this little baby chimp uh, with milk and so on, but your plan is to re- release it back into a troop, back into the wild. We've all seen, or most of us have seen, this cage being taken out into the jungle with a, you know, and then the, the, they, open, yeah. they open it and the chimp stays in there. I don't want to go there. But you're free. You've got agency. Now you're a free chimp, but I'm scared. I don't want to. I don't want the freedom that I apparently have. It's something we all recognize in animals, but we're much worse at recognizing it in ourselves. So to be told, actually, it's not as bad as you think it is. It is, as Hamlet says, nothing is evil, but thinking makes it so. And you have convinced yourself. And that conviction is a real thing. So we're not mocking you and saying you're an idiot, but you have convinced yourself of something that might not be true and that actually you are a lot better than you think you are, but you're used to crouching in the corner saying, I'm not free, I'm not free. Actually, maybe you are. So we've got to find a language that that might help people with that. It's not always the case. Some people are genuinely in such distress. No, no, and uh, as you point out, I, I mean... Fundamentally, we have to recognize the, and if you want to say, the genetic compositions that cause us to be different mm. and and not judge people necessarily on that yeah. always. You know, like your friend or, uh, who drinks three drinks. Well, now, obviously, they shouldn't be drinking. Yes. <laughs> but but. Exactly. but they, you can see how they think it's unfair. Hey, I didn't drink any more than they did. But, right. You know, and yeah, it's yes. quite hard, so. easy to delude yourself. Yes. Well, Stephen, we've run. <laughs> we've run out of time, but it's yeah. been great. Yes. I love talking to you. No, I, I, I would love to spend some more time at some point. Well, to... maybe we will. It would be an absolute pleasure. But thanks for talking to me, Jim. And, and thank you on behalf of the world for all the work you do. It is remarkable. Oh, well, I, I, I hope I, I, people I, listening have uh, you know, seen, seen an insight into what, what it is that you do. And you obviously make us all feel extremely guilty, which is very annoying of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, listen, uh, I, I would suggest to you that I am a imperfect person, uh, regardless of how it may seem. And uh, I have people who keep me honest. You know, that's one of our challenges. Who you know, People have a tendency, especially if you have prominence of one form or another, to tell you that everything you say is right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, I fortunately have this Russian wife <laughs> who, who never lets me forget that I'm a human being. <laughs> we do need that. Yes. We do need people to remind yes, us. Exactly. <laughs> Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. <laughs>